There are nearly 10 million adults with serious mental illness in the United States. Some of these people will come into contact with the criminal justice system, at which point their lives may be dramatically altered by the decision to send them either to prison or to a psychiatric treatment facility. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Christine Montross, an Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine at Brown University. Dr. Montross has written a perspective article about confinement of people with mental illness. Dr. Montrush, you write in your article that as a result of the closing of state hospitals in the 1970s and 1980s, jails and state prisons now house more than 300,000 people with serious mental illness. So how was deinstitutionalization supposed to work, and why didn't it produce the outcomes intended? The idea for deinstitutionalization was really quite a lofty and appealing ideal and came out of some kind of gruesome era of having people contained in facilities that oftentimes treated people very poorly. So in an honorable response to that, there was an upswelling of thinking that people should not be kept in institutions who had serious mental illness, but instead should be integrated into our communities, and that they should receive their care in the community and live in the community, and that that would be a way of rectifying this injustice of keeping people in institutions and also addressing sometimes the lack of care and even abuse that people sometimes endured in these facilities. So the idea was actually a wonderful one and one based in autonomy and health. And what we saw was that it became a terrible failure. Indeed, people were removed from institutions. That's where the term deinstitutionalization comes from. But the money and programming necessary to absorb people with severe mental illness into the community was never established. So the infrastructure, the needs for treatment, the access for housing and food and medicine and care were really just empty promises that were made and left really our most vulnerable citizens without these basic and fundamental needs being met. So what we saw instead was huge spike in homelessness that people who had been living in institutions instead began to live on the streets and then a phenomenon that's become known as trans-institutionalization to which you referred, which is that people began to be arrested for things, and they ended up, instead of in long-term psychiatric facilities, they became incarcerated and spent many, many months or years in jails and prisons. So, in fact, you write that when a mentally ill person comes in contact with the criminal justice system, the decision about whether that person is going to go to jail or to a treatment facility rarely is based on clinical considerations. So what factors do determine what happens to that person, and how does that decision then play out on the ground? So there are many, many factors that come into play, and oftentimes these are volatile circumstances, so they're not easy situations to navigate. But take, for an example, a relatively benign interaction between someone who's mentally ill in the community and law enforcement. So someone with severe mental illness who begins speaking loudly in Starbucks. The Starbucks manager asks them to leave. They do. They come back. They're asked to leave again. They don't leave. And eventually, if they're creating a disturbance, the police are called. Technically, this could qualify as criminal trespass. But you have here a mentally ill person who's creating a disturbance of their behavior, which is part of their illness, is going against our social norms. We say you can't come into Starbucks and yell and create a disturbance. That's something that we say is not in line with our social norms. So it's okay to call the police in that instance, our society has said. 
So you have a person with mental illness whose symptoms of their illness are creating the disturbance. Then you have police officers come, and some police officers have been trained in rudimentary ways in mental health issues. Some have not. And those of us who work in psychiatry and in mental health care know that those can be difficult situations to manage when someone is, you know, perhaps agitated or confronted in a way that could upset them. So that very moment has the potential to go in many different directions. Increasingly, there are some programs where police officers are trained to help calm and de-escalate situations, and that's in some ways the best-case scenario. But those programs are few and far between, so what can happen often is that the person becomes more agitated, as any of us really might be if a police officer came up to us and tried to get us to stop doing what we felt we were entitled to be doing. So that moment, then the police officers are faced with a decision. Do they take this person who is exhibiting obvious signs of mental illness to the hospital, or do they take them to jail? And what we see repeatedly is that there's not really a methodology to how that occurs and when. Sometimes it feels like, depending on the police officer or the training that they've had, one decision may be made over another. Sometimes if police officers have routinely taken people to the hospital, even with the good intentions of getting therapeutic interactions or evaluations, given the dearth of psychiatric beds that is available right now, Sometimes people will receive an emergency room evaluation and then be discharged immediately without psychiatric admission or treatment and go back to doing the exact same thing that they were doing that caused law enforcement to be called in the first place. And the police officers decide that they're not going to go, you know, retrace their steps and take the person back to the ER that just let them go. So they decide, well, maybe this time in order to stop this behavior, I need to take them to jail. Sometimes the situation escalates. So you have someone who was causing a disturbance in the Starbucks, but when law enforcement comes, the person becomes agitated, perhaps they even become violent. And if you assault a police officer or a correctional officer, that really makes things move in a more criminal than therapeutic way. So oftentimes if the situation escalates, police officers may be more inclined to take the person to a criminal justice facility rather than to a hospital or health care facility. So even if we expand access to treatment for people with serious mental illness, it seems inevitable that some of them will spend some time in correctional facilities. So are there strategies for making mentally ill prisoners safer and for improving the care they receive? Yes, but I would also argue that there's a missed step in between those two statements, that yes, we need more treatment for people with serious mental illness, and yes, Some people with serious mental illness will end up in the criminal justice system and correctional facilities. But I also think we need to pay more attention to keeping people with serious mental illness out of correctional facilities, even if they have come in contact with the criminal justice system. So yes to better treatment, but also for those who receive inadequate treatment or even who are in treatment but may behave in a way that leads them to confront criminal justice officers and puts them in that system. I think we really need to look at what do we hope to expect when we are sending mentally ill people to jail and prison, and is that really the outcome that we want for these vulnerable citizens, and is there some way in which we could achieve the goals that we have for keeping our society safe and keeping people's behavior in line with these legal norms that does not put someone who is severely mentally ill into a correctional facility where... And here comes the next part of your question. They're more apt 
to be victimized. They're more apt to have their symptoms worsen, and they'll have less access, often less access to treatment than they would have outside of the facility. So I think absolutely there's more that we can do to address, and we have to because we have such a huge population of mentally ill people in our jails and prisons. We must really devote more attention to how are we caring for them, how are we meeting their needs, how is the environment exacerbating their mental illness, and therefore making the jobs of correctional officers even more difficult, in addition to the experience of mentally ill detainees, more difficult. But I think we also need to really think carefully and closely about why are we sending these people to jail and prison, and is that really the right move to begin with? Looking at this issue from another angle, Rosenbaum in a Medicine and Society article describes the difficulty involved in reaching people with serious mental illness who resist help. How do you decide when a nonviolent person with serious mental illness should be involuntarily committed for treatment? This is such an interesting question, and I was really glad to see that she took this up. It's one that those of us who work with people with severe mental illness confront very, very frequently. And I think there are a variety of approaches In considering it, there are also a variety of legal standards across the country for it. So different states have very different laws and rules about this. Most of them are based in the premises that someone may be, in Rhode Island we call it emergency certification, someone may be emergently certified to psychiatric care, basically means compelled to get care against their will. If they exhibit an immediate danger to themselves, an immediate danger to others, or the phrase that's often used is grave disability. So this would mean someone who is paranoid and so not drinking food or water, putting themselves at serious risk, someone who has you know, barricaded their doors and windows, someone who, who is behaving in a way that even though they're not actively suicidal or homicidal, threatens their own health or the health of others. So those are generally the standards by which someone can be compelled to receive psychiatric care against their will. That being said, from state to state, the duration of that involuntary commitment varies widely. So some states, a patient can be held against their will for 24 hours. In Rhode Island, a patient can be held under an emergency certification for 10 days. And there are other states in either direction and all through that spectrum. So from state to state, the duration of involuntary commitment really varies. And I think the frequency with which those standards are used varies as well. And I think the question is also, what are the ethics behind that? When are the circumstances when it feels okay to take away someone's autonomy if they're saying, I don't want care, and we, in a relatively paternalistic way, are saying, we believe you need care, and our belief trumps your belief in this situation. You know, I think that this is complicated by the fact that here the diseased organ is, in fact, the mind. It's the decision-making organ that is the diseased organ, and that's what makes this question such an interesting one. There are certainly circumstances where this ability of people to hospitalize mentally ill people against their will, there are certainly instances where that power is abused. I would say I see far more often that people don't get the treatment that they need rather than people getting the treatment that they don't want. I think that much more attention is paid to the fact that people can be admitted to a psychiatric facility against their will, but I think the attention really belongs more to see how very many people do want treatment and are not able to access treatment. 
I think also, and the article that you reference acknowledges this in an interesting way, you know, many people, when they are psychotic, say that they do not want treatment, and then once they're treated, are grateful for having received the treatment. And I think that underscores the complexity of this issue. I also think we have to ask ourselves difficult questions about what civil liberty and autonomy mean in this situation. I think when we focus too narrowly on decision-making, someone has the right or the autonomy to make a decision to refuse treatment, we are ignoring the other things that people have a right to. They have a right to receive care. They have a right to live a life where they're not in fear. They have a right to be receiving the medication that helps them think clearly and participate in their familial relationships and their jobs. So I think when we focus just purely on that civil liberties autonomy question in terms of decision-making, we're focusing too narrowly. And I think we see this, you know, I've done some writing and thinking as well about patients with intellectual disabilities, which we see increasingly on my unit as well. And a friend of mine who has a brother with severe autism describes this very issue by saying that, you know, his brother loves to swim. His brother also has very limited verbal ability. And one of the things he says most frequently is no. He loves to swim. He's happy every time that he's swimming. But the folks in his facility would come and say, do you want to go for a swim? And he'd say no. And they would say, well, we're going to respect his right to not go for a swim today. And my friend would say, look, if you just put him in the van and have him go, he's going to love this, but no is what he says. So I think sometimes when we put too much stock in just the question and the freedom to answer that question, we're really missing out on the bigger and sometimes more complicated picture. So we've identified a number of gaps in the system. Where should reform start? Is this an issue that communities and states can take up on their own, or does change need to happen at the federal level? I think both of those pieces are necessary at this point. I think that certainly universal health care has been a critical piece of this and maintaining that, along with mental health parity, which I think has to come from a federal level. I think that's of critical importance. I also think You know, when I started my work and research on jails and prisons, I can't tell you the number of times that I'd go to visit one and someone would say, you know, if you've seen one prison, you've seen one prison. And I think that that is really true. The reality is that we have a system that differs widely and vastly from state to state and community to community, and sometimes for very good reasons. The jail here in Rhode Island is a small state jail that I've visited and seen, and then I visited the Cook County Jail in Chicago, which is a big city jail, and they have a different set of problems. But there are some common, fundamental issues that I think we need to address across the board. And I think those arise from these central questions of what we hope to accomplish when we arrest people with mental illness, why they are encountering the criminal justice system to begin with, What could prevent those encounters in the first place? And I think access to care is a big portion of that. But then again, when those moments of contact and encounters do occur, how do we better prepare our police officers who are dealing with volatile, sometimes unpredictable people in the community to de-escalate those situations rather than escalate them? And then how do we make sure that there are options available for those officers to seek treatment for mentally ill people as opposed to feeling as though the only secure option for them available is a facility of corrections. Thank you, Dr. Montrose.